Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. My name is Adam Jones. Uh, today we are reviewing Influence the Psychology of Persuasion by Robert B. Caldini, which has come a lot up in a lot of books, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, I think it's Cialdini or maybe Cialdini. But yeah, mate, he's, uh, this is a serious weapon of a book. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of seriously good good stuff in really here. Really Influencing yeah. or either influencing people or avoiding being influenced by people trying to exploit these these mm-hmm. these uh, principles of influence. Mate, before we get into the book, we got a very nice review during the week, which you want to... Mate, this was a legendary one we just stumbled across. Like, we never get notified, but we just find them occasionally. Uh, from the UK, I believe, from Great Britain, from JC London, excellent for readers and writers. Who needs a snobby book reviews uh, on Goodreads when you have a couple of sharp, happy, natured, and down-to-earth Aussie guys doing it infinitely better? Uh, the first shows are a bit ropey but raw, and thankfully the raw core talent to understand books and present them for an audience has remained. Uh, this is effectively reading comprehension we had at school, done brilliantly and enjoyably. And it goes uh, a lot further um, from there. We'll leave it at that, but that was a awesome. Cheers to JC J- London. JC, thank you so much for that, man. That's, uh, yeah, helps us keep, keep on going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, little, a little boost for us. Yeah. <laughs> we, do, uh, we do love the reviews and we do chat about them during the week. And it, yeah, it yeah. Means a lot. Mate, so this influence book, I put it in the category of Thinking Fast and Slow that we did. Mm-hmm. And another one uh, we'll do later called Paradox of Choice and sort of those. It's obviously the author, uh, super, super knowledgeable in the field, knows so much stuff, has done so much research and has got so many examples. So there's a lot of stories to... to um, fl- uh, to expand upon these <laughs> principles, yeah. um, uh, which makes it a long read, but a bloody some serious gold in here, mate. Just I'd probably add to those books you mentioned with a bit of a little bit of Forty Eight Laws of Power and yes. a little bit of dark evil, evil yeah. manipulation <laughs> yeah, exactly. kind of shit as well, which you can use for good or you can use for yeah. bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Definitely. Yeah, very similar actually. In that you can either use for good or for bad, or uh, use to defend yourself against mm. whoever, whoever else is using this. So Robert says he was a long-standing sucker for people <laughs> uh, trying to sell him stuff. Yeah, basically he was a what he, he called himself a patsy, mm. and he says that. Um, so from there, from the moment he realizes that he was a sucker for all of these things, he wanted to dive deeper and work out what these were, uh, and he calls them uh, the the psychology of compliance, and he wants to find out how these compliance agents. Uh, twisting us and making us do things that maybe we don't go against really, our logical judgment. Yeah, we don't really want to do them. But yeah, so there's six principles. So we've got a lot of books out that just like spell it out so easy. Yeah. So it's re- much easier to remember. So we're obviously going to go through all six principles in yep. this potty and hopefully do it in a way that people remember it and get some good value out of it. Yeah, and he says that a, a big basis of all of this stuff is what he calls fixed action patterns. In that he calls it the click were of a cassette tape, which is probably a little bit of outdated analogy. But like when you click play and the tape whirs and, and starts playing so he calls those the trigger feature there's a, cl- a trigger feature that clicks us into action uh, and then it plays on from there almost without thinking he calls it primitive automaticity mm. yeah so this is automatic uh, programs we've got in our brain that people are trying to exploit and most of the time we don't even realize that we're getting clicked yeah, yeah we're, just, we're just going through the motions yeah and just buying shit we don't even need so yeah, yeah chapter one start of the book is Weapons of influence. So the exploiters can commission the power of these weapons we're about to go into yeah. for use against their targets while exerting little personal uh, effort. Yeah. A few, I guess, examples of, of this is um, just we... Similar to thinking fast and slow is that we've got this preference for shortcuts. We don't want to use too much cognitive load, tough cognitive work. So he says that a good like example of this is price. And that if something's expensive, we assume it's good. And if something's cheap... 
we assume that inexpensive is cheap, cheap meaning bad, and so we prefer to uh, go for something more expensive because we think the quality is better. Mm. Um, and it's just a it's a shortcut, so we can respond for with greater efficiency. Mate, one of the first, I guess, principles that uh, isn't necessarily one of the things that he calls a weapon is the contrast principle. Mm. So it's the idea when you were presented with two things in succession, what you experienced in the in the second is influenced by your your perception of the first. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that your uh, perhaps if you were if you had say three options for a pricing structure and you went from the cheapest to the most expensive, the expensive one seems more expensive because you've been sort of pegged with that cheaper one first. Mm. Whereas if you start from the top, then it, because you're used to the expensive one, the second one seems cheaper in contrast. And one of the ways the real estate agents who are con, ask, con artists uh, adopt this uh, strategy is by taking a client to a rundown house. So they would take mm. them to a really piece of shit house and say the price, uh, tell them the price is really inflated, so it's much mm. more expensive than it really is. And then they'll take him to the target property, which they actually really want to sell. Yep. And then this will look like a reasonable price compared to the first piece of shit yeah. they, were, they were shown. Yeah, exactly. Even though the price is similar, the quality of the first makes the quality of the second seem so, so much better. Mate, there's a really... What do you think of the story at the end of the, the daughter sending the, the message to the mum and the dad? I thought it was pretty funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the daughter... So there was some chick at, at college who hadn't seen her parents in a long time. So she, yeah. showed, she sent them in a handwritten letter and went along the lines of something like this. So, hey, mum and dad, I recently jumped out the window and fractured my skull. I spent two weeks in hospital and I'm only getting a few headaches per day. <laughs> I got pregnant with a 40-year-old. We are getting married, but he is getting tested for blood disease, which I turns out I'm positive for as well. <laughs> and then so he goes on through that. Then at the very end, it says, by the way... I'm not pregnant, I'm not engaged, and I'm not infected, and there is no boyfriend or husband. However, I've got a D in American history and an F in chemistry. Yeah, <laughs> just want to put things into perspective. Yeah, <laughs> yeah nice. Trust. Yeah, nice, I like that. Um, there's a lot of stuff in this book, so we'll try and um, pick out the best stuff. So the first of the, uh, the six things is res- uh, reciprocation or reciprocity. And, that, and the rule sort of says that we try and repay in kind what someone else has provided for us. And so he sort of says like, uh, one example he uses is someone give us, gives us a gift or someone does us a favor, we feel indebted to them. Mm-hmm. Even if we didn't actually want the gift in the first place, but if someone gives us a gift or gives us a favor, then we feel like we should repay them in kind. Yeah. So the free sample is a great marketing mm. technique. It's used, and this isn't in the book, but it's used in, say, in Bali where they have these little, really cute six-year-old girls who always gives you these free, free bracelets free and thing, all yeah. these free things, and then you're always obligated to give them something in return. <laughs> yeah. And he talks about the Hare Krishnas in that they... Uh, they give a free gift, whether they give like a flower or even a copy of the Bhagavad Gita um, or a copy of their magazine. And then they give that and then they ask you for a donation after. And that you feel because they've given you this gift, you get suckered into to doing something back in return for them. Yeah. Another I've example. That. <laughs> <laughs> Another example, which I'm sure a lot of the girls out there have experienced or guys have tried to probably do it unconsciously. Mm. And that is when you're at a bar, you go out to a bird and you, you buy them drinks all night. Uh, yeah, thinking exactly. the reciprocity. Oh fuck! I'm always going to butcher this word. Like <laughs> that, that weapon of influence might mean that she might feel obligated to get into bed with you or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they said it. So it's actually a pretty good strategy to give a gift early at the start because giving a small gift can generally generally lead to a larger uh, 
reciprocation mm-hmm. and it says that you know humans we hate to feel this sense of obligation we hate to feel trapped by someone so in order to get rid of that sense of obligation we'll probably go above and beyond what they did mm-hmm. so if you give a small thing first they'll probably give you something bigger in return yep so there's a way you can provide the contrast and the reciprocity uh, rule combined for a really powerful force mm. so the way robert was was stooged by a little boy scout a little eight-year-old uh, got got Robert got Robert pretty good. <laughs> so he was, he was selling uh, tickets to a circus for a Saturday night for thirty dollars, and then when Robert said no, he says, "Oh yeah, by the way, can you buy these two dollar candy bars?" And yep. then Robert thought he was conceding to the two dollars. Yes. And then, but in reality, that that was the little Boy Scouts goal the whole time. Hey, I don't think there was a circus. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's I think that's what they call the door in the face strategy or the reject then retreat strategy mm. in that you have some big audacious uh, offer first of all and it, it feels like the circus not only do you have to buy the 30 dollar ticket but you have to give up your whole night to go to the circus mm. whereas then when he retreats back to the two dollar candy bar it feels like a massive concession that you can you'll happily take to mm. and it's so in that uh, reciprocation, that favor is almost the concession. So if, like in a negotiation, if you start high and come down from your initial offer, then the person feels obliged to reciprocate and come up from their initial offer. Mm. Yeah. So I guess you both. It feels like you're both conceding, whereas the the manipulator, is, yeah, it's been his plan all along. <laughs> yeah, you both exactly. concede to somewhere in the middle. Yeah, love <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, mate, was there some way to um, counteract this, or does that come later? Yeah, so a bit of every chapter says how to say no, and mm. and that is just to realize that sometimes nothing is a gift. Be careful, mm. and you're going to encounter authentic, generous individuals as well as many people who just try to play this rule mm. and try to exploit it. So sometimes you got to define these things not as gifts but as sales devices and realize that a favor always follows a favor, yeah. at least subconsciously, right? Yeah, exactly. So just be aware if someone, if it seems like someone's doing it, a good favor for you. Be careful. Mate, the next one? Yes. Commitment and consistency. Uh, I'd like to quote Leonardo da Vinci. It's easier to resist at the beginning than at the end. And that's because if we make some kind of commitment or if we do something, we feel like all of our future actions then have to justify that. We have to be consistent with what we did yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Everyone wants to feel like they're being consistent with their, mm. their initial commitments. Yeah. So there's a good story of Tim and Sarah. Do you have yeah. that one there as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll hit it with you. Well, I didn't like it, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as in, I didn't like the outcome, but yeah, go for it. So Sarah, so some chick Sarah wanted to break up with Tim because he was a big alcoholic, Tim. Yeah. He smoked every pack a day. He drank every night, just 15 yeah. beers every night. So Sarah <laughs> said, fuck you, I'm going to go off. And, and so she went off and got engaged with another dude. But then Tim came back to her and said, hey, I'm going to stop drinking and smoking. Yeah. And so Sarah, what she did was she broke the engagement and she committed to Tim. And then yeah. after a few months, Tim said, oh, actually, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep on drinking. <laughs> but because Sarah committed to Tim and she made yeah. that choice, she kind of, in her own brain, uh, thought it was the right decision. So she mm. stayed with him forever and, and she made out the problems. Yeah, exactly. She made such a big commitment. Mate, one that rung true to me was uh, he said that at the racetrack, immediately after someone placed a bet, they feel so much more confident that that horse is going to win. So before the bet... You're somewhat confident. As soon as you place the bet, your confidence level rises so much <laughs> that you think that it's, it's going to come true. <laughs> so definitely. And so with this consistency, again, it comes with uh, us trying to have shortcuts, trying to avoid that hard cognitive work uh, of that 
we've made this decision once, so it's easier to then make all the same decisions that line up with that initial decision. Yep. Making it less work for us. That's right. There's another interesting story you had here was about the toy companies. So Mm. one way they were able to exploit this rule was they would advertise their best toy. So I'll start with the problems. The problem was they weren't getting sales in January and February after Christmas. So what they did is they advertised one kind of toy before Christmas and then all the kids uh, asked their parents they want that toy for Christmas. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So they went to the store. So the parents said, yes, sure, I'll get that for you. That's their commitment. They went to the store and the company specifically under under supplied mm. and so they were sold out so they had to get a different toy so come christmas day they've got a different toy come the december 26th the kid says but you told me you'd get me this for christmas yep. so they go back to the store a week later and, and buy the initial toy as well yeah so the parents were promised to have these toys and then they had to stay true to their commitments so what happened was they ended up buying it in january and february <laughs> yeah. but it was all just a big manipulation <laughs> by the toy companies yeah exactly that's it, man, it's pretty funny yeah, that's no, pretty clever. So, as a as an individual, so there's another the rule of the commit. Another way it can be exploited is, I guess, fraternities who who make people who join these clubs go through these tremendous amount of pain mm. at the start. So, uh, you know, make them drink liters and liters of alcohol, sleep in the cold, punishments, threats of death, even. <laughs> <laughs> but so the the greater deal of trouble someone goes through to obtain something, the more they will value it. Mm. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Um, and so the the key to all of this is that commitment. And he said that the the best sorts of commitment are active, public, effortful, and freely chosen. So that the more public it is, the more consistent we feel obliged to um, behave. And the same as if it's more effort, as you mentioned, more freely chosen. Um, and uh, yeah, one of the examples he talks about is this foot in the door or like a loss leader where a company might sell something very cheap, not to make a profit, but to get that commitment from you. So that once you've made that commitment, you'll buy something from them again in future. That's what they call the, the foot in the door strategy. So selling something super yeah. cheap, not to make money, but to get you sucked in basically. Man, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stories in, in the book which, which shows how you can sucker people or be yeah. suckered. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Including the Chinese communists, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. Um, next one, Matt. Matt, uh, sorry, just quickly. And the, the other thing was that uh, freely chosen. There was a good quote. He says that um, he who agrees against his will is of the same opinion still. So if you force someone to admit that they believe something, they don't actually believe it. It has to be that freely chosen, um, freely accepted, freely given commitment that mm. matters. Yeah, Love it. And I guess that goes down to uh, writing your own goals. It also talks mm. about in the book is when you write down your own goals, you, you're subconsciously committing to something and that's why writing down goals actually works. Yeah, and that, that's what he sort of says that grow their own legs so that you, if you give one leg of commitment, whereas maybe you write your own goals, then there's a whole bunch of other legs that grow off that where you justify why you want this goal. And mm. so it gives it so much more support and um, to that, that commitment and through consistency. Yeah. Really Next one, stuff. sorry, mate. Social proof. Yeah. So there's also a great quote that starts says, where all think alike, no one thinks very much. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that, um, that uh, I guess, the the wisdom of crowds, but I guess the opposite of the wisdom of crowds, that, uh, what, what does he call it? Pluristic ignorance. That's the one. That's yeah. exactly what it was. We're going to do in a bit. <laughs> I love the start is how it goes through canned laughter. So what makes it 
so appealing. Mm. So if you listen to a really shitty sitcom on TV and they're saying these really <laughs> awful gags and then they put these canned laughter on, <laughs> it's like, it just sounds ridiculous, but it actually works, doesn't it? Mate, it works because if you heard a crap joke and nobody laughed, you wouldn't feel that sense of need to laugh. But if you hear a whole bunch of other people laugh, even though it's probably faked, mm. then you feel like it's actually funnier than it really is. Yeah. So, yeah. So, this one is social proof too. Just because everyone else is doing it, you feel complied mm. and you don't have to think as much because everyone else sits. Another example is how waiters leave money at the tip jar at the beginning mm. of the shift just because it looks like a lot of people are, are you know... Yeah, that's it. They, they see the tips early. If, if there's an empty tip jar, you don't necessarily want to be the first. But if there's already a couple of bucks in there, then mm. you're... Um, and then he says that the the greater the sense of ambiguity, the less certainty there is, the greater we have a, a reliance on social proof. And that we feel that if other people are acting this way, then that's the right way to act. So we'll act that way as well. Yeah. So the greater the number of people who find any idea correct, the more the idea will be correct. Yeah. <laughs> and, mate, I got, there was a classic yesterday morning on Messenger just when I finished reading this that I got fully sucked into one of the examples here. Mm. It says that jaywalking... If like if there was like a hobo jaywalked, no one would do it. But if there was like a well dressed businessman jaywalked, mm. then like maybe two or three more people will follow him. And then once there's sort of three or four people have crossed, and everybody else does as well. Mm. And so, mate, I did it. A businessman walked across the road in his nice suit. Two or three others followed, and without even thinking, I started crossing. Mate, it was a bit of authority <laughs> mixed in there as well. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Another chapter. So yeah, the, the big the big bad boy in this is which is pretty interesting was the pluralistic ignorance. Mm as you briefly mentioned. So it's the concept when there's a little bit of unclear or ambiguity, uh, I guess people follow the crowd even more and this can be mm. really dangerous at times. Say if someone's, he has an example in the book where someone was getting stabbed in the middle of the street yeah. and everyone was no. watching from their windows and no one did anything. I think there was 38 people or something that did nothing. And so it sort of works both ways. That If nobody's taking any action then nobody wants to be the first one because they assume that's what everyone's doing hmm. but then he said if, if you if you uh, identify one single individual to do a specific task and they do it and somebody else follows then it works in your favor as well that once a few people start doing it everyone starts doing it yeah so it works both ways if no one's doing it then you're not you're very unlikely to do it but if everybody's doing it you're very likely to do yeah. it so yeah people's brains i guess are inherently lazy so when when you're uncertain you, you will just use other people's actions to make the decision for yourself without really critically thinking mm. or being rational at all man there was a funny example he says if you go and stand in the street and look up to the sky mm. do it for a minute probably nobody will look up but he said that if a guy got three of his friends so there's four people all looking up at the sky and within one minute 80% of people that walked past looked up oh, because there's four people looking up <laughs> just quickly now on a really on the, one of the darker notes you're yeah. not afraid to go into some dark stuff there's here some dark stuff. but there was the su- what happens is after a major suicide goes on the front page of the paper or it's really pub- public there are actually more suicides and even more plane crashes mm. that go up as well yeah statistics. Yeah, he's, and that's why uh, a lot of the, the media is aware of this. So that, like, uh, I'm sure, I don't know if it's everywhere, but I'm sure it is that, uh, like, people jump in front of trains, they almost never put it on the news because then it gives people the idea that a good way to commit suicide is to jump in front of a yeah, train. Yeah, it's a logical option. It, it goes up, yeah. Um, Man, it's just like that movie, that really shit TV series I'd watch the end of, the, what was that? 13 Reasons Why. Oh, oh I've, I've avoided shit. that one. Yeah, it's a shocker. Yeah. Shit. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Maybe we up to the, the next weapon. The next, the next one weapon. The, uh, the weapon in the tool belt. Is liking. 
And that it's um, basically if you like someone, you're more likely to oblige with their requests. Mm. So he has the example here at the start of the Tupperware party, which which actually uses a lot of weapons in influence. So it uses mm. reciprocity. <laughs> How do you say it? Uh, reciprocity. Reciprocity at the start. So at the games at the start, everyone receives a gift. So everyone thinks they owe something. Mm. There's commitment. So each person in the circle is urged to describe publicly the uses and benefits of the product of the uh-huh. Tupperware. There's social proof. So once the buying begins, similar people want the product. Mm-hmm. And probably the biggest one is here. People have to feel like they have to buy something because it's one of their friends they yep, like who are hosting this party. No, it sounds like a, sounds like a bloody well, well thought out strategy by the Tupperware company. Mm. Yeah. They said there's like uh, every 2.7 seconds there's a Tupperware party starting somewhere in the year. So there's a lot of these things going on. Yeah. I've never been to one. <laughs> but it also goes in the, the halo effect of good looking people. Yes. Know? Yeah, so one of the so this is why we like people. One of the things was physical attractiveness, and as you said, the halo effect from thinking fast and slow. He says that uh, as a way to shortcut, we just assume that good looking equals good. So if we think there's a good looking person, we assume that they're good at whatever they're saying, and that that halo effect where we take one small piece of somebody's like a characteristic and extrapolate that to apply to everything that they do. Yeah. So we so some of the the big things is similarity. So we like mm. people who are similar to us. So one way of doing this is, is claiming backgrounds and interests similar. Mm. And actually, one, one political candidate in order, one of his strategies to win the ele- one of his elections was changing his surname to Brown. Yeah, because there's <laughs> a lot of people with the surname Brown. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, another one is compliments. Is that We're a phenomenal suckers for flattery. So if someone gives us compliments, um, then we're more inclined to like them. Mm. <laughs> So the important thing is to establish a positive connection if you're trying to sell a product and mm. it doesn't need to be a logical one. So that's that's used a lot in getting celebrities to help advertise products on, yeah. on TV. So it's got no logical connection, but just because we like this person, we think it's a good product. Yeah, exactly. Another one is that... Uh, actually, I just lost it from the top of my head. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I had one at the top Sorry, of my head. Sorry, mate, I like you. You get away with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to go for the next weapon. Yeah, the next weapon. Yeah. The only other, uh, yeah, next weapon. Not next weapon. Authority. So, authority. So the, the the big dog here was the study of by Milgram, right? Mm. So this was the study, which I guess has got a lot of a uh, lot of press. And that was where people were asked a question, and they were sitting in a chair connected to electric buzzers, and then then there was a person in a lab coat in the experiment and then there was a third person who was the subject mm. who was told to buzz and give zaps for every wrong answer the person sitting in the chair got wrong yeah and every time they got an answer wrong they cranked up the power of the jolt mm. um and it got like so much where the guy's like begging them to stop begging them to stop he's like kicking trying to break out trying to kick the door down everything to try and stop it um and then even when he stopped answering, the guys like the guy in the lab coat just kept telling him to buzz him, buzz him, buzz him, buzz him. Even if he doesn't answer, just buzz him. And yeah. everyone did it. Yeah. So this guy was getting pretty much electrocuted. And even when the, the guy getting electrocuted said, hey, I've got a heart condition, fucking stop. <laughs> <laughs> they kept going just because the guy in the lab coat who was, was in doing a position the study, of authority yeah. was saying, you need to do this, keep buzzing, keep buzzing. So they just yeah. kept on fucking buzzing. Mate, thankfully the guy in the chair was an actor. Yeah, um, and so there was, he wasn't actually getting buzzed, but they switched it up. And when uh, when the, the lab coat guy was sitting in the chair, 
And so, and the actor told the guy to buzz. And as soon as the guy in the lab coat said stop, they stopped straight away. Mm. So yeah, this is impregnated from the very start of our lives from birth. So we're taught from the very start, obedience to authority is right and disobedience is wrong. Mm. So this message fills parental lessons, school rhyme stories and everything from the start. Then it's carried through legal, military and political systems we counter as we get older. So this blindingly uh, blind, obvious um, obedience to authority. Yeah, nice. And a few of the ways that we can, I guess... Uh, try and either actually have authority or pretend we've got authorities through titles like doctor or professor or something like that. Uh, the clothes we wear, so again, like the lab coat or like a fancy well-tailored business suit uh, and through trappings like uh, expensive clothes, jewelry, cars, things like that. Yeah. Um, mate, another, one, another funny quick story before we moved on was like a doctor once prescribed medicine for someone mm. who had an ear infection in their right ear. But he, <laughs> what he wrote down on the piece of paper was, R, then ear. So, yeah. <laughs> so R, ear. And then the nurse read this and then got the medicine and then told the person to bend over <laughs> and stuck the medicine in their ass. <laughs> so even the rear, not the R, uh, the right ear. Mate, there was an interesting one here in authority that um, he said that in US elections, 90% of the time, the taller candidate won, hmm. which is pretty high. Yeah. Um, so the tall Not, person ninety percent. 90%? 90%, he said, yeah. Fucking That perceived authority of just like, yeah, a bigger yeah, person has a more authority. Person. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting. The next weapon in the tool belt was scarcity. Mate, this is important. That we, if we think that something's scarce, we think there's a chance that we we'll, might lose it. Um, then we're going to try extra hard to get it. Yeah. If things are abundant, it's just natural that you're not going to really value it as much. Yeah, exactly. And you think, oh, I can just get that any other time. So one example here was some, some guy that, uh, so he bought it, he found a dollar bill and there was, it was imperfect. So it was er- erroneously printed with no serial numbers or government seals. So he bought it for $400. <laughs> for a $1 the, note. For a $1 <laughs> note. So on the surface, it looks pretty stupid, but yeah. because the, it was the only one of that type yeah. in the world, it was scarce and it was actually worth thousands. Yeah. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Uh, and a variant of the tactic is they say, like, give a deadline, like a hard deadline. Like, this is the deal. As soon as this time is up, the deadline, then the deal is off. Yep. And so that's another form of scarcity. So you feel like you might lose that. Um, that deal because of the time scarcity. Mm. Yep. Another use is the limited number tactic. So mm. if you say, if you got a product and you say only five available, yeah. everyone everyone uses this, don't they? Yeah. You, can say, <laughs> you can tell people who say only twenty seats available. Mm. You know they would happily have one thousand people at their, yeah. their event, <laughs> yeah. but they're using the scarcity tactic, which is probably a crock of shit most of the time. Yeah. You say there's only twenty seats available. Get in now, because otherwise you might miss out. Which yeah. isn't true, but they're just they're manipulating yeah. with this tactic, and it works. And it works <laughs> exactly. Um, and so that's sort of like our, again our weakness for looking for shortcuts. A big thing about this scarcity he says that as opportunities become less available, we feel like we're losing uh, some element of freedom, and we hate to lose freedom. So that we feel like if we're if we're going to miss this opportunity, if we're going to lose that sense of freedom, that, that means we're going to fight extra hard to try and try and get it. Mm. Yeah, phenomenal stuff, man. Another way it's used, I guess, in, in popular culture is it's our tendency to want what has been banned. Mm. So if someone at school says, hey, you shouldn't be watching porn at lunchtime, yeah. you're just yeah. going to go and watch porn at lunchtime. <laughs> <laughs> you can get your phone out and go straight to the, the cubicles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, mate, some of the another thing he says an, an optimal condition for scarcity if something was previously abundant and then became scarce. So he said there was a um, a thing where there was a, a jar of cookies. There was a full jar of cookies, and someone had to tr- taste it and evaluate how good it tasted. Mm. But then they took the whole jar of cookies away and said, "Oh, sorry, these are for other people." Yep. There was only two cookies then in the jar. The people who tasted it rated it um, so much higher than when there was a full jar of cookies just because they thought it was scarce. Mm. It was previously abundant, had become scarce. Mate, you got more on that? No, I think that's... Mate, there's, there is a lot more, but I think that's the main the main stuff. It's a lot more. So I, I guess just a, a recap of all the weapons you can use if you want to manipulate people and be a con artist or if you want to <laughs> avoid being manipulated. Yeah, basically... The, the, so there was we had that uh, reciprocation... Yep. We had commitment and consistency. We had social proof, liking, authority, and scarcity. Mate, I really like this book. Yeah, good book. As I said, there's, initially there was, there's so many stories and uh, a lot of examples and stuff. So it's a long 300-pager, um, which I was initially, you know, I like a bit of get to the point a bit more. But yep. upon upon review, it's phenomenal. Absolutely it's, phenomenal. Yeah, I reckon it's an absolute five-star. It's yeah. just the, the best kind of... Well, in the tagline, it says the psychology of persuasion, and it's yeah. exactly that. It yeah. is purely the psychology of persuasion. So I guess after reading this, you're going to be more self-aware of how you're getting persuaded. Yeah. If you're trying to, to sell something to yeah. someone, and when I say that, I'm probably meaning in the positive term because I see, mm. I, get, I see the psychology of persuasion as a way of maybe helping people to, yeah, to exactly. do good things yeah, as exactly. opposed to conning people. Yeah, massive. Uh Massive book in terms of size and uh, and Value. shit that you learn, yeah. Yeah, go out there and buy it, mate. How are we going to get a song that has these uh, six things in I it? I don't know, man. <laughs> we'll, we'll just wing it. We fucking always. I got a weapon in my back pocket for you. The influence by Robert Cialdi. I've got a gift for you, but you need to pay me back, it's true. Reciprocation, making you do the things that you may not want to do. I want to commit to keep my word for the things that necessarily, not not necessarily, be true for me, but I Not much left, I'm gonna want more. Because there's only five left, it makes it more valuable. I'm gonna spend my money just to get what's left. It's scarce, it's scarce. Oh yeah. <laughs> 